reading this time from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ that was made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Of this Gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all... uh, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in Christ and uh, sorry, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Friends, let's continue to pray that God would open our eyes and help us to see the greatness of his glory. Father, we do pray that you, through your spirit, would enable us to see how great you are and in the midst of troubles, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of a world that has turned itself against you, we pray that we might see what you are doing and be part of your great purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not an easy time to own the name of Jesus Christ in Australia right now, is it? Uh, Just lately uh, in this state, there's been um, the use of anti-discrimination legislation used against uh, Julian uh, uh, Julian Porteous, um, Tasmanian Archbishop uh, of the the Catholic 
um, group, the, the Catholic Church, who had released a booklet to Catholic schools affirming a largely biblical view of marriage and affirming the current laws of Australia. Or to give an example from my own state of New South Wales, a few years ago a number of booklets were banned by the New South Wales Department of Education. Uh, these books were associated with the special religious education curriculum um, that is used by the Anglican Church in uh, Sydney in particular. And they were deemed dangerous, uh, so they were banned. Why were they dangerous? Well, one of the books was called You, an introduction. It was uh, written by Michael Jensen. And in this book, Michael talks very briefly about Christian martyrdom. Uh, you know, the idea of being prepared to die for our principles as Christians, something that we honour in individuals like, if you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the Christian theologian and leader who refused to give in to Hitler, resisted Hitler, ultimately died as a result, uh, a martyr. And he's mentioned in this book, or this idea of martyrdom. But groups and party leaders, political party leaders, who did not like Christians or the name of Christ, and they wanted Christianity completely out of the public, they were able to lobby, they were able to bend the ear of government officials to twist those words. And they, they showed the officials the books and pointed to the fact that it had the idea of martyrdom in them and convinced them that well, if it's Christians are talking about martyrdom, it must be the same ideas as suicide bombers uh, and September 11 uh, people. And, and the officials, presumably not reading the books, uh, were just able to be convinced that Christians are dangerous, do you see? They believe in dying for their faith. They're terrorists. Kick them out. We've got to ban their books. And the thing is, the officials were so scared that they did. They bowed to the pressure until... People looked into it. The ban was reversed and shown to be completely ridiculous. But friends, that's just a small taste of what is happening and will probably keep happening and will probably get worse. And it's far worse elsewhere in the world, isn't it? Uh, think of Indonesia, where uh, anti-blasphemy laws being used for political ends against uh, the Christian presidential candidate, Ahok, who's been jailed for two years. Uh, simply because he said that some clerics had lied and people took that to mean that he was saying that the Quran was full of lies and therefore he was put into jail. In Pakistan, where anti-blasphemy laws are frequently used to accuse Christians so people can seize their property. India, where anti-conversion laws are used to promote violence against Christians, that bombing of the, the Coptic Cathedral in Alexandria that I mentioned uh, just in the previous talk. And of course, even more extreme is what's happening in Uganda and Syria, where being, people are being tortured and publicly raped and beheaded for being Christian. Things look frightening. And we might ask the question, what on earth is God doing? What's he doing? Because if his message is the truth, and if Jesus is Lord, then why doesn't it look that way? Why does everybody seem to be winning who's not Christian and putting Christians down? 
Well, now look at the situation of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul is writing this letter from uh, prison or perhaps from house arrest. So it may not be that he's ter- you know, languishing massively in prison, but he is in prison. He's probably in Rome. And the reason that he's in prison, that he's imprisoned, is that he has been preaching the gospel, preaching the message about Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, which brings salvation and peace. And he's been preaching it to the Gentiles, non-Jews scattered throughout the world. Now, according to the final chapters of Acts, what landed Paul um, in prison, or at least under house arrest in Rome, was mob rule. Uh, The mob in Jerusalem that was convinced that Paul's preaching of Jesus Christ was dangerous to Israel's purity. And so they rioted. They, they thought that he brought a Gentile into the temple. They were, and, and the Roman authorities who came, they were afraid of the disturbance of the peace. And to cut a long story short, the mob and the Roman desire for peace won the day and Paul ended up um, being in prison for some time and then being shipped off to Rome. But I want you to notice two strange things about Paul's mention of his imprisonment. The first strange thing is that he takes a long time in his letter even to mention his imprisonment. I mean in verse 13 in this chapter he says that he's concerned that his readers might be discouraged by his imprisonment. So why didn't he mention his imprisonment right at the start? You think that is what you should do. You mention at the start of the letter and say I'm imprisoned, pretty bad, a few complaints uh, but it's okay. Why does he wait until now to mention that he's in jail under Roman authority? And the second strange thing is is as soon as he mentions his imprisonment, he just immediately stops talking about it and starts talking about something else. He talks about his ministry of the gospel, about his preaching of Jesus Christ to the world. Why is that? I don't think it's an accident. I think it's deliberate. Now, Paul may well have been in terrible circumstances and upset and and all sorts of things, but what he does here is he chooses to do something else. He wants to mention his imprisonment, but he doesn't want it to be the biggest thing. So he certainly will mention it, but he doesn't want it to be the big thing. Instead, Paul wants them to lift their sights, lift their sights away from his situation and actually see there's something far bigger than his individual situation in prison. He wants them to see that even in this situation, in fact even in the situation, God's plans through the gospel are being advanced in the world. In the first 13 verses of chapter 3, Paul talks about these great plans of God for his world and we see there that God's plans through the gospel are far-reaching and multifaceted. But look at verses 8 to 10. He says, to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul talks again about God's grace, about his gift. Remember that great gift of salvation has been a huge part of chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, God's grace has been poured out on us, giving us forgiveness, making us children through adoption. In chapter 2, that grace is entirely by faith and not by works. 
And now do you see even more dimensions of God's grace described in chapter 3. There's the personal dimension of grace in verses 2 and 7. God has been so gracious in revealing himself to Paul. Paul was little. He was unworthy. He was the least of the saints. He was the one, if you know any about his story, he persecuted the church. He wasn't even a member of the original apostolic group. There's the knowledge dimension of God's grace as well in verses 3 and 4. That is, God has been gracious in making himself known, in revealing his plans. Because by ourselves we can't really know anything about God's great plans, but God's heavenly revelation has broken through our ignorance and an inability to know. That's grace. There's the time dimension in verse 5. God has worked out his plan throughout the ages. God's plan was there in the Old Testament, but in many ways it hadn't been fully brought to light. It wasn't clear. But now with the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the gospel, that plan has been revealed in time and we have the privilege of living this side of Jesus rather than on the other side, the grace of knowing his plans in time and space. There's the international dimension of grace in verse 8. The riches and wonder of the gospel is not just something for one nation, Israel, to keep for themselves, but it's for all nations to go out to all the world. There's the social dimension of grace in verse 6. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people, not just for one special group or one special nation, the gospel brings about that equality of status between people. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Gentiles, yeah, they were allowed to be blessed by God, but not in the same way as Israel. They were sort of like hangers on to Israel. But God's grace in Jesus Christ means that all people who trust in him, no matter what nation they are from, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, together with the same status as God's children and having access to God. And there's also a cosmic dimension to God's grace in verse 10. Because as people hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to trust in him, as we're raised spiritually and seated with him above the powers and authorities, as we're united together and gather around his word in the church, this is actually a witness to the spiritual powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, is what he's saying. Sometimes we wish, don't we, we could have a heavenly experience of angels. And you can see books about about angels, I, I, you know, we want to lift ourselves above our mundane experience and have sort of angelic experiences and spiritual experiences. But in reality, what was Paul saying? The angels wish they could have an experience like us. It's not that, it, it, it's the other way around. That we, what is happening with those who trust in Jesus Christ is so great that even the angelic powers and authorities, whether good or bad, are being witnessed to by what is going on here, as it says in 1 Peter, even angels long to look into these things of salvation. What God is doing amongst us is amazing. Because we've been saved and forgiven and we know God's love and we are his children, we are his adopted heirs together. So this is what it means when Paul talks about the manifold wisdom of God. Talking about the multi-dimensional nature of God's grace to us. It's like God's technicolour, high definition, 3D surround sound plan for the universe. And that's what Paul wants them to know. And he wants them to know that 
because he knows that they will be discouraged by the fact that he's in prison. Why would they be discouraged by the fact that he's in prison? Because he's the great preacher of the gospel going out to the world and they might think, well, if he's in prison, what, you know, is this, is this thing really real? What on earth is God doing? And he wants to say, well, yes, I'm in prison, but see what God is doing. Now, in our world, there is a tendency, um, especially I think nowadays, to play, sometimes to play uh, the victim game, isn't there? And so often we can define ourselves and our entire identity by being victims. Now, there are real victims in our world, don't get me wrong. There are people who really have suffered terribly. But sometimes uh, in politics, so often that it's almost as if the one who can prove that they're the greatest victim become the winner. Now, there are genuine victims in our world who need our help and support, but there are those who play the victim and who actually, in the end, can wield huge power uh, by showing everybody how victimised they are and therefore people will follow them. Now, brothers and sisters, we can be tempted sometimes to play the victim game too, especially as we're opposed and oppressed and unfairly treated and fined and worse. That's something that we can do. But, brothers and sisters, we must avoid that temptation to play the victim game. Now, yes, we suffer. We do suffer. It is right to admit that suffering, to say, yes, I am suffering, to come before God when we do suffer ourselves personally and to know uh, that our brothers and sisters around the world are truly suffering and to pray for them um, in other parts of the world and even here in Australia. But the thing is, we need to remember that there is something deeper than even that suffering. Ultimately, if we are in Christ, we are not victims. We have something so much greater. We have God's grace. We have his manifold, multidimensional, deep, powerful grace. We have forgiveness of sins raised with Christ. And that's what Paul wants his readers to know and remember and concentrate on and to see that even in prison, even when it seems like God's plans are not working out, that Paul can rejoice because, in fact, the reason that he's in prison is precisely because he's been given the grace to preach the gospel. So he rejoices. And his suffering is not as a victim, but it is for their glory. Are you suffering in your life? Are you suffering particularly for being a Christian? Or, or feeling that, that, that suffering, feeling that, that, that fact that often people around us do not love us or like us for being Christians? What do you need to know? What do you need to know first and foremost is God's great grace that intimately involves you. And yes, to cry out to him but to know that grace. And when you do cry out to him, you might not necessarily get an answer as to exactly what God is doing in particular in your situation and it might be hard. It might be very, very hard. And we need to love and care for our Christian brothers and sisters who are going through hard times. But what God wants you to do, 
most of all is to continue to lift your eyes and to see and remember what God's great plans are through the Lord Jesus Christ, plans for all the ages and which intimately involve you. And that tells you that God is doing something in particular in your suffering, even if he doesn't tell you what it is, this side of glory. I guess you will see what God is doing, perhaps in this life, perhaps in the next. But to see that God is in control and to see that he is doing great things. So in the second half of chapter 3, we see how the enormous dimensions of Christ's love call for, what do they call for? Prayer and praise. Ephesians 3, 17-19, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think Paul is referring here back to the Old Testament, back to the prophet Ezekiel, in fact. Ezekiel was a prophet living in a situation of great despair. Great despair, terrible times for Israel. They were living in exile, they were living in Babylon, they were living uh, at a place where they, as Israelites, were living as a result of God's judgment. They were away from home, they were oppressed by ungodly authorities and powers. They were longing for home, at least the godly ones were. Others were just getting on with it and just assimilating to Babylon. But those who were longing for home, those who were longing for God's presence, Ezekiel received a great vision from God about what was going to do. And it was a vision of an enormous end times temple. Uh, the temple in Jerusalem had been the place, you see, where God dwelled among his people. And yet God had judged Israel, left his temple. The temple had been destroyed and so God gave Ezekiel a vision of a new future temple. And there was this temple in Ezekiel. It's got these enormous huge proportions and it's got an altar in it and Ezekiel 43 uh, bring, God brings Ezekiel in and says look at the altar it's height, it's breadth, it's length, it's depth this is an altar where I will show my love because on this altar there will be a sacrifice for sin made and God will dwell yet again among his people. Do you see what Paul is praying here? This vision of a temple has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. There has been a sacrifice for sin, Jesus' death on the cross. This is the love of Christ for us, Paul is saying. And Jesus comes to dwell in us, in our hearts, by faith. And Paul prays that his readers, if they're at all tempted to be discouraged, would understand not necessarily how big a building is, but how big Christ's love is for us. Because that is where God dwells with us, by faith. And he does love us. And Paul prays that we would see all the dimensions of this love and how big it really is, the breadth, the length, the height and depth, and that they would see this along with all of God's saints, his holy ones. That's Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 19. And this is actually a prayer we can pray for anyone, isn't it? It's a prayer we can pray for ourselves. You don't know what to pray for someone. You could turn up Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and 19 and pray this for them. If they're discouraged about what on earth God is doing in his world, pray that God would grant them open eyes to see the enormous dimensions of his love. Pray it for yourself. 
the personal dimension, showing his grace to unworthy sinners, the the knowledge dimension, revealing his plans, the time dimension, the international dimension, the social dimension, the cosmic dimension, putting us into a position where even angelic powers of the world see and are amazed at what, what God is doing in and through us. Pray for them that they would know Jesus' love shown in dying on the cross for their sin and how big that is. And pray they would understand all that means for them, for their lives, for their relationships, for their status. And these enormous dimensions of God's love, Christ's love also call for praise in verses 20 and 21. The one who is greater than us and is able to do far more than we can even ask or imagine. This is praising God and asking that he be glorified in the church, his people, and in Jesus Christ forever. And do you notice how even the praise of God has that manifold, that multidimensional character. He's great. May he have the glory in all people, in Christ, in all generations. So when you are discouraged, this is a prayer to pray for yourself, isn't it? Because when we are discouraged, what can so easily happen is that we turn inwards. We think of our own individual problems and it is right to call out to God in that, but if we just think and concentrate on our own individual problems, that is what we magnify. And we magnify them and magnify them and make the problems the big thing. But this prayer and this praise, it reminds us that God is the big thing and that we are to magnify God. That Jesus Christ is the big thing. And that God's multidimensional plans and his grace through Jesus Christ for our good are the big thing. Not just despite our suffering, but even as Paul sees it, in our suffering and through it. I think we should pause to pray now, shouldn't we? I'll lead us in prayer. For this reason, Father, we bow our knees before you, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts, through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of your fullness. Amen. Chapter 4 I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower, earth, the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labour, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, in Christ, forgave you. So now we come to Ephesians chapter 4, and it's in this chapter that Paul starts talking uh, in more detail, in more concrete detail, about exactly how we should play our part in God's great plans. So in verse 1, um, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that, that word walk is deliberate. Uh, it's a way of talking about our daily life. Uh, one step after another as we go about our day. And saying our daily walk matters to God. It really does. Because it's a walk that has to be worthy of our calling. Now, what's our what's our calling? Well, it's what we've seen in Ephesians so far, isn't it? We've been called to a wonderful calling in line with God's great plans for his universe. We have been forgiven through Jesus' death. We've been called to be God's children, to be adopted by him. We've been called to be seated with Christ 
secure, living a whole new life. We've been called to do good works which God's prepared for us to walk in. So it's a daily walk, but it's a walk that really matters. The focus in this first part of Ephesians is on unity. We must be eager to maintain, uh, sorry, the first part of Ephesians 4 is on unity, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. What's the unity of the Spirit? Well, again, it's got to do with God the Father's great plans to unite all things under the headship of his Son, Jesus Christ, as we saw in chapter 1. The Father, the Son and the Spirit work together. The, The Spirit is not some extra force, but he is that person of the Trinity who serves the Father's plan through the Son. In chapter 1, the Spirit was the guarantee of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. In in chapter 2, the Spirit is the one who unites all of God's people, Israel and the nations, because in him we both have access through Jesus Christ to the Father. The Spirit builds us all together into a dwelling place for God. And in chapter 3, the Spirit is the one through whom the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to the world. The, the Spirit reveals the great plan, the mystery of Christ of the, to the apostles who preach the gospel to the nations. And so the Spirit is the one who in the world is bringing about that unity, unity in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point that Paul makes here is that unity is something that we're called to maintain in our daily life. We're not called to create unity. We can't create unity. Jesus has done that through his death on the cross, through the Spirit, but we're called to maintain it. And unity is a good thing, isn't it? But it's not easy to maintain. And that's because, well, we're all different. I mean, we're even different in small things, aren't we? Some of us like cricket, some like AFL, some like League, some like nothing at all, some like a sport that I haven't mentioned yet, and I'm sorry I didn't mention that sport. Some like tea, some like coffee, some like nothing, some were born in Tasmania. Others, like me, were born in that other Aussie island across the Bass Strait. Some are rural, some others, like me, live in the big city. There are are little differences, aren't there? Maybe they are big differences. There's other differences that are maybe more fundamental to who we are. Some are men, some are women, some are younger, some are older, some have one kind of job, others do other kinds of jobs, different backgrounds, different drives, different abilities, different loves, and these differences between us are good, aren't they? They're not necessarily bad. But because we're different, these differences can lead to misunderstanding. Because we just don't get each other. We can be annoyed with each other. You know, men don't necessarily get how women work. Women don't necessarily get how men work. Well, maybe, maybe they do. Uh, but men don't get how women work. However it is, I don't know. I'm not a woman. I'm only a man. I don't understand. But we can be annoyed with each other because we don't get how each other work. We can envy each other. We can wish that we had what others had. We can be proud and boastful if we do have something great that, that other people wish that they had. We can be angry with each other. We can start to form grudges. We can exclude people over those Differences, and that's why Paul urges these things here in verse 2. Humility. Humility means taking a low position when you're tempted to be proud, not trying to be great. Gentleness, that is, if you do have a position of strength in some way, being gentle, being willing to care for those who are weaker than you in any particular situation. Patience, waiting for people, love. Where do these things come from? 
Because it's easy to say, oh, we should all just be united, but if we just insist on unity, it doesn't always work because we still do have our differences, don't we? How can we be united even in the midst of all of our differences? And the answer is, in fact, the Gospel and God's great plans through the Gospel. This is the burden of the first 16 verses, that Christ actually gives diverse gifts for the sake of Gospel unity. So verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace or God's gift is given to all of us. God gives all of us grace. He gives all of us, if we were trusting Jesus, the grace of salvation. But that grace or gift is also given in different ways, in different circumstances. Now differences aren't there so that we can fight with each other. Our differences are there so that we can serve and love one another in different ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the gospel. Verses 7 to 16 talk about how those differences work together for greater gospel unity. Now there are different understandings of what verse 7 to 16 is talking about, but I've uh, over the last years uh, prayed and, and looked hard at this passage. This is what I think is happening here. Because there are many connections between what's described here and the words used in this passage and again the book of Acts. And where Acts describes the gospel of the Lord Jesus going out to the world from the early apostolic community starting in Jerusalem. So verses 8 and 10 are about Christ ascending and descending, ascending after his resurrection in great glory and power and then descending, uh, I think here is talking about descending in the person of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, enabling his people to speak the gospel to the nations. There were special people in Acts with particular roles, leaders in the early church. And if you read Acts, you read about apostles and prophets and evangelists. You read about teachers, and there seem to be pastors there as well. These people were gifts of God, but their God was not simply so that they could be special. Their job was to equip and to prepare the saints. The whole early Christian community in Jerusalem, at at least, uh, if not others, for the work of ministry, not for themselves, but so the gospel would go out to the world. And so the gospel did go out and many people heard it. So I think actually this passage is describing the gospel going out to the world beginning from Jerusalem. You might want to talk with me afterwards about why I think that uh, more. But for now I want to concentrate on verses 14 to 16 because this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where Paul's vision of how the church should work is spelled out in detail. This is the goal of the gospel going to the world. This is where it really does matter for us. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So do you notice here that Paul's vision for us is the church. It's not just a flat unity where everybody's exactly the same. But it's definitely not a vision where we, we, we have to make our, our differences really big as well. No, this vision of the church is where we use our differences for the sake of gospel unity. It's a body with different parts but one goal, united by Christ who is the head. And like a body, like like our own bodies, there's unity and diversity, isn't there? And the unity is the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel. That's what the, the truth is. 
So we have that great truth, that truth about who God is and what he's doing in the world. And we're to speak the truth to one another against false teaching and against wrong teaching which just blow us about. That truth of the gospel matters. But we're all different too. Different gifts, different members of the body. Human bodies are wonderful things, aren't they? And when our bodies work properly, it's amazing. And if you think about it, just a simple act of walking across the room is an amazing act of coordination between body parts, an amazing logistical exercise that God has just coded into our bodies. And we don't think about it, but you've got the eyes looking out for obstacles, you've got the inner ear keeping us balanced, you've got the different muscles of the legs pulling and relaxing in exactly the right way, the head coordinating it all for one goal. And um, you do see how complex it is when, when you have problems walking for health reasons or whatever, don't you? It is a complex thing, but amazing. And that is why cancer is so devastating, isn't it? Now, what, what, what is cancer? Cancer happens when certain cells in the body, they, they have this situation where the cells multiply and grow by themselves in a way that isn't controlled by the rest of the body, in a way that is not actually working for the body, but it is cancer. It's when certain parts of the body become actually very good at replicating themselves and growing, but not acting for the good of the body. It's runaway growth. It's not good for the body at all. And that can happen in the body of Christ too, can't it? In church, in our relationships with our brothers and sisters, we are diverse and different and that is good, provided that we remember that our differences and gifts are there for the sake of one another and for the sake of the gospel, that unity that is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, not for ourselves. If I start to think it's all about me, if I start to try to gear everything uh, in, in church around me, rather than Jesus and the gospel, if I start to try to make little me's who are like me and like me and agree with me, that can be true whether you're a leader or not. If I do that, I become a cancerous cell, eating away at the body, stopping that unity from happening. Are, Are you being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace? That doesn't mean peace at all costs. The unity is actually the unity of the gospel, the truth. It's speaking the truth in love, so we need to have the truth. But is it all about you? Or is it all about the unity of the Spirit building other people up in Jesus Christ? That's the question. That's important, isn't it? And in fact, the key to it all is summarised in that wonderful phrase in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Living the Christian life is all about speaking the truth in love. And actually, um, in, in the original language, um, the phrase speaking the truth in love is literally truthing in love. Uh, but truthing isn't an actual English word. So, you know, uh, but let's pretend it is for a minute. You know, truthing in love. What does truthing mean? It's not just referring to true things in general. It's that specific truth Paul has talked about. In chapter 1, he's spoken about the word of truth, the gospel, about salvation for all who believe in Jesus, rescued from the futile life of this world, taken uh, from our futile life, forgiven of sins, from God's uh, from wrath, from the control of the powers that be, 
being forgiven through Jesus' death for us, given a new life to live, which is secure because we are seated with Christ and we're to walk and talk in line with that truth. That's, that's the truth. That's what we did. And that's what the truth in Ephesians is, this gospel message and its implications for our lives. So do you see verse 21? Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. That's the truth we're talking about. So what's truthing? Truthing involves speaking and living out this gospel. Speaking the gospel, speaking about the implications of the gospel, speaking in a gospel-shaped way and living it out. But as we speak the gospel, we're not just to be speaking that, that truth or just making sure that everything is true. We'd be truthing in love. What does in love mean? Well, again, it doesn't just mean being nice. Yes, it's good to be nice sometimes. Being nice is nice. But in love is far greater than that, far greater than just being nice. We've seen that in Ephesians, haven't we? There's a particular amazing kind of love in view. There is God's love. That is the love that is above all other loves. In chapter 1, God's love undergirds his eternal plans for us. In chapter 2, God's love stands behind his mercy in rescuing us and raising us with Christ. Christ himself loved us by dying on the cross for our sins. So this love of Christ is what has to be the thing that changes everything about our lives when we grasp how wide and high and long and deep is this love. It provides an anchor and grounding for our lives. Knowing the love of Christ causes us to live lives of love for others because we're secure in his love and to see that we're living in a whole new sphere of loving relationships, the body of Christ, the church, where we love out that sacrificial and costly love for one another. You see how big love is and how big the truth is. And so what is truthing in love? It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the message about Jesus Christ. And it's about relationships. And it means speaking the gospel, speaking the truth against falsehood, speaking the implications of the gospel, speaking in a gospel-shaped way within the whole network of loving relationships that's characterised by God's love for us in Jesus. And it's the opposite to, what's it the opposite to in this passage? It's the opposite to being carried away by false teachings with, which point us away from Jesus. Instead of false teaching, we build one another up with the truth of the gospel. A great example is there in verse 25 and 27. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbour, for we are members of one another. Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This is about not letting anger fester and boil away. There are times when we do need to be rightly angry when there is something that is genuinely wrong, but do not let the sun go down on it. Be reconciled. Don't let it fester away inside you. Seek reconciliation. Verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamour, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
See, this is not saying you, you, could, you could concentrate on we must speak the truth and you could concentrate on saying, well, we have to make sure that we're getting the, uh, all of our doctrine right or that we're saying the, the true things. You could say that, but you could be doing that without love, couldn't you? On the other hand, you could be loving, you could be seeking to love people, but it ends up just being niceness because you end up not actually going back to the gospel and Jesus Christ and pointing people to Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's the most loving thing to do is to point out error. We need to be truthing in love, both of those things. And the opposite to truthing in love is actually speaking for the sake of ourselves, you see. Because so often when we speak, we speak for ourselves, don't we? The reason we speak is to try to make ourselves feel better or to build ourselves up or to make people think that we're good people. But Paul says here that because of Jesus Christ in the Gospel, we should have a different reason to speak. We should speak because we are seeking to build others up, not to build ourselves up. And that applies to our personal relationships. It really does apply to social media too, doesn't it? If you're uh, on social media uh, at all, uh, social media involves using words in the context of relationships with others. Now, it's a pretty weird and wonderful world, but truthing in love applies to our online interactions with people as well as to our face-to-face interactions, doesn't it? So if you are a Christian, you have the security in Christ to be able to ask yourself two questions if you are using any kind of social media or email or whatever it is. Firstly, are you truthing? Is what you're saying actually informed by the truth, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it undergirded by the security you've been given in Jesus Christ? And is what you're saying online actually helping to commend the gospel truth about Jesus Christ? Or does it promote unhelpful uh, false teachings that might lead people away from Christ? And secondly, is your interaction in love? Are you acting in a way that actually affirms your relationships with people? Or are you acting as an isolated individual with your own personal agenda because social media can really make you feel like you're very, very alone in the midst of all these people who are online. Are you being sacrificial like Jesus, not saying things with a primary aim to build yourself up, but with a primary aim of building others up? Why would you do that? Because you don't need to build yourself up. You don't need to make yourself look good. You don't need to get likes. You don't need people to think that you're wonderful because God has this wonderful plan through Jesus Christ for the world and if the gospel has come to you and you've believed it, that means that God's Spirit is at work in you, uniting you to Jesus Christ and bringing you into God's great plans for the universe and you have great security and you don't have to live to build yourself up because God has raised you and seated you with Christ in the heavenly realms. You don't need to be afraid of the powers of the world, uh, of what people think of you. You don't have to be a cancerous cell making everything revolve around you and destroying the body. Instead, you have the freedom to speak the truth in love. Using your gifts and skills and diverse differences, not for yourself, but for others. Shall we pray? Father, we praise you for your Spirit who gives us access to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Enable us to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
and help us to put aside all those things that work against you and your plan through your Son, Jesus Christ, to speak the truth in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.